Well, howdy, neighbor. It's health and happiness time. Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. Thank you there, Brother Bill. That was very interesting. And friends, all I want to tell you is all about the Good Neighbor Get-Together. Howdy, folks, and welcome to the Good Neighbor Get-Together. Come on in and make you seven home. We're family here. So pull up a chair to the table and listen in as we serve up some good old country music and southern hospitality with all the fixings. And don't forget to pass the biscuits. This is the Good Neighbor Get Together. What hath goat testicles and a radio station in Mexico in the 1930s have to do with the Carter family, the popularization of country music, and Oh Brother, Where Out Thou? actually listeners a lot and it's rooted in one man john r brinkley the notorious quack of the 1920s and the 30s who made millions of dollars implanting goat testicles into impotent men as a as a booster all the while implanting country music in the hearts of radio listeners from sea to shining sea i think they could hear it as far as belgium okay so to talk about this man and the stars of bonkerness all aligning. We have the privilege of speaking today with Pope Brock. Pope Brock's the author of a book that chronicles the comings and goings of John R. Brinkley. The book is called Charlatan, America's Most Dangerous Huckster, The Man Her The Man Who Pursued Him in the Age of Flim Flam. Greetings, Pope. Thanks for joining us to discuss John Romulus Brinkley. <laughs> um, Everyone comes to learn of the legacy of John Brinkley in different ways. What was the path that made you aware of the good doctor? I stumbled upon his name on a, a website called the Museum of Hoaxes. I was just trolling around in there, um, entertaining myself, and I ran across this name. He was just a name in a list, and it said uh, something like John Brinkley million watt radio station goat testicles and <laughs> that was it said, I'm this guy. <laughs> and so i just after that i just pulled the string and uh you know and the rest followed we were in trying to think of a good name for for our podcast we trolled around the obscure corners of the internet and we happened like you we happened uh, and we happened upon the name the Good Neighbor Get Together, which was the name of a radio program that the Carter family did in the 30s. And so in an attempt to fortify our understanding of the name and the radio program, we we came to learn that for about three years, beginning in 1938, the Carter family could be heard both live and later via radio transcriptions on the Mexican Border Blaster Station, XERA. But we laughed out loud when we saw that they were sponsored by, for example, the Consolidated Royal Chemical Corporation, which sold Peruna, which was a tonic to ward off colds, and that would, quote, knock out the torture of colds, end quote. Um, they were also, <laughs> they also offered Colorback, and that's like spelt with a K and then B-A-K, Colorback, which was a hair tint that, quote, scientifically imparts color and charm to gray hair. 
end quote. Yeah, so it wait. turns out the rattlesnake oil salesman behind all this was John R. Brinkley. So before we get to the Carter family and, and Mexico, can you tell us about this character? And feel free to go as long, <laughs> go as, long <laughs> as you want. Well, um, he came out of North Carolina, out of uh, the... Um, you know, out of the mountains there, and he was poor, and he didn't like being poor. Um, and uh, he had a he he had a nose for um, for getting money out of other people really early on. So by the time he was twenty, he was already on the back of one of those wagons, you know, with a bottle, mm-hmm. um, you know, with a song and dance thing going, and um, and all of that. So. He was he was one of those lucky people who knows what they want to do in life right from the start, you know. Um, next step turned out to be Knoxville, Tennessee, I think, where he got a lab coat and uh, they um, put him into a. Um, it, it was an early kind of um, of men's reviving kind. It was it was tonic though. It wasn't anything. Mm-hmm smart and elaborate is what he came up with later. I mean, smart is a scam. It was, they were just selling bottles of stuff, right? Um, and uh, they had a, um, they had a sort of model of a horrible face dripping, uh, dripping wax. And uh, this, this is what will happen to you if you lose your manhood it was called lost manhood right across the top of the case wow uh, and uh it, and brinkley was there in a little white coat and when people would freak out at that they said you know don't worry we've got you covered you know, we're going to take care of this it's not going to be a problem for you because right over there on that table as you'll see my colleague there has a has a pile of bottles and he's about to sell you one and you're going to be fine and then they would um take his money and put him out the door into the alley. Um, that gave him a general framework for, uh, for the impotence racket. Mm. Um, but it didn't, it was still uh, very cloudy and he didn't jump, he didn't take the next step right away. He banged around, he made some mistakes, you know, he, uh, he, he got into some kind of, um, uh, German electric medicine racket in uh, <laughs> North Carolina, which was um, colored water, basically. It was like blue water, I think you said in your book, right? And they called it German electric medicine, <laughs> which just has a ring to it. You're like, yeah, right, exactly. He and this he and this one armed friend of his, some <laughs> kind guy, um, got together and you know settled into this town and um, and sold that uh, for quite a while until they ran up so many bills and whatnot, then they just, they, then they just booked it, you know, in the middle of the night and left all those people behind. So did uh, he go to school to be a doctor or how did well, that? It depends. Like on what, mill or? It depends on what you mean by school. Uh, he went to a school of sorts for a while. Um, he wound up getting a diploma as just a diploma mill, as you say, turned out to be his, uh, his top credential in the long run. He trained a bit, not a lot, uh, enough to make him uh, plausible. When he got very prosperous, mm-hmm. and he wound up going over to Italy. He, he got a fake diploma from uh, a university in Italy 
and he bamboozled them and whatever. So he was always, he, by the end, he had a, a string of letters after his name that oh, yeah. went on, you know, like 15 or 20 letters, all <laughs> various degrees. So, <laughs> so what did he end up? Okay, so he starts he starts over in Carolina, then he, he he's he's being a shyster over there. He goes to school, kinda <laughs> buys yeah. a buys something. He he knows enough to like talk to make people listen at least. Um, but it all really sort of comes to it its own in Milford, Kansas. Can you tell us how where it where it starts really get cooking? Yeah, well, he was um he was in a low ebb. He was very frustrated that he couldn't land on something that was really going to put him on the map. Um, when he went to Milford, it was in a state of discouragement. Um, it was a tiny town and uh, they needed a doctor and it was just a stopgap, he thought. Didn't, uh, they, didn't they say it was like a larger town and he showed up and it was like, it's not the size that he thought it was? Yeah, they were advertising themselves as a town of 2,000, and it was a town of about 200. Right. So he, he got there, and his wife burst into tears. Um, but they really had nowhere else to go. So they, they set up and got started. Um, it was all pretty depressing for him until the day that this farmer came in and said, Doc, I can't get it up. I, you know, I don't know what to do. And Brinkley started off saying he didn't know what to do either. Um, because he had it in his mind at that point that he was going to have to stay in this town. And if he, you know, he, he couldn't start, he, he couldn't sell the guys, uh, something fraudulent right off the top. Mm. But then this, um, this farmer Stitzworth, um, was looking out the window of Brinkley's office and he sees these goats out back. And he says, it's too bad I don't have billy goat nuts. <laughs> this was the eureka moment when uh, Dr. John Brinkley's career changed forever. Um, there's, there's dispute, uh, or it was never clear, whether he then paid Stitzworth to undergo the experiment or, or he got Stitzworth to pay him to do it. But one way or another, <laughs> Stitzworth wound up on the table. And um, uh, he's on one table, and then they bring in the goat on another table and, um, you know, make the transfer, basically. Uh, <laughs> and Stitchworth you know, shakes hands. He, you know, after he recovers, he shakes hands, leaves. And, uh, you know, some weeks later, he comes back and says, it works. You're a genius. I love you, you know. Uh, and from that point, he was uh, he he was made. And need I say that what the guy was running on was entirely mental, you know? Because if there's anything that depends on the right mental state, it's getting it up, you know. Yeah. And if yeah. you can, if you can convince a man that he's going to be able to do it, if you do this, then a lot of the time it's going to work. It's wow. a psychological trick, right? This is part of the genius of this particular scam. Um, plus, he had there was a there was a context at the time. There was a uh, there were there were 
real doctors, reputable people who were doing research on monkey glands and things like that. They thought they saw a way to extend life and these various things. They were all wrong, as it turned out. They were wrong, but they were uh, sincere researchers. Uh, Brinkley adopted or adapted that, uh, that kind of thinking to middle America, where the goats were. So he, he knew science was looking into this. It didn't just dawn on him out of the blue, like, hey, I can put those inside this man. He knew that at least science was, they were taking monkey glands and things like that. He just didn't jump to the guy saying, I wish I could have those. And like, well, I can do that for you. Well, he, he, he wasted no time in right, uh, right. saying yes, but he did have this kind of wider world thing going on that helped him sell it. Mm-hmm. You know, helped his respectability level uh, a, a lot. So, so he so it begins to build a, a goat nut empire, you know. Mm-hmm. And and there's a, a documentary that um, you know you have linked on your on your website called Nuts from 2016. I think it was Penny Lane, which is just by the way so amazing, so so good. Um, you're interviewed in there, but um, so. So what we see is he he's he swaps these nuts, he does this goat glands, and for some reason he, he well, apparently it worked, the goat gland baby, or people folks things it worked, and he starts making a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And I think I even saw that like he had like like people would go out and they would pick their goat, like I want those, those, those goat nuts, and he had like a <laughs> like corrals where they're all together or whatnot. Well, so that my was question. Better. My question is what, so at what point does he start getting momentum? And he's, he's not just like a guy making a few bucks. Like he's earning, like, I think I ended up reading or something that he was getting like 20 or 30 grand a week. And he started having connection with pharmacies. And now he's, now he's just good for what else you, not even just like goat nuts. He he's your cure all guy. Where, at what point did he become known and wealthy? And what, what was the evolution? His, his climb to infamy. Well, it was the radio that uh, that took this uh, word of mouth uh, marvel that he had, had cooked up, which, by the way, let me say, when he talked about transplanting goat testicles and whatnot, what he meant was opening the scrotum, tossing them in, sewing them up. I mean, there was no transplant going on, not even a attempt all right at times later on as he was really rolling sometimes he wouldn't even bother to do that you know the guy was out he wouldn't know the difference you know (laughs) know, it was very it was very it was sketchy within sketchy you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) because once he started getting popular and famous like he put milford on the map right like the whole city was built around him i think in your in your book you mentioned that uh he said something like christ didn't build the church here Uh, i did so we're going to call it brinkley methodist church because i i I built the church (laughs) yeah that, that was that was a church too far for the minister you know they wouldn't let let him do that um, but that was about the only thing that he was denied in that. Oh, time. so they ended up denying him because the pastor, I think you said in the book, was just mesmerized by this guy, wasn't he? he well, he was. I mean, up until the point. That's the that. But that was the that was 
That he wouldn't do. He wouldn't name yeah. the church after Brinkley. Yeah. He said, church actually is God's church. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I was just listening today. Um, I think it is either from your side or like the Kansas Historical Society, but it's like 28 minute Sunday night lecture from Brinkley. And uh, just in preparation, I started listening. I'm like, whoa, this guy is compelling. He was actually, he was, he's not, he said really good things. Like if I didn't know he was a joke and I just happened upon it, I'd be like, Hey, this is pretty good. It's common sense. He seemed like the salt of the earth kind of guy, like every man's man and, and just focused on family and God and government. He was trying to be like, you know, bipartisan or whatever. But, um, so you were saying like, it, it really came to the point. So he's in Milford, Kansas. Mm-hmm. He's, he's, he's doing these, um, this this operation or not but he's doing this scam and he's starting like building huge facilities people are coming from all over he even does it to famous people um and then you're saying he gets into radio what are some of the things that he does on radio and then and how how are the people receiving him like are do people know that he's a quack at this point or no 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 um no none of his audience doesn't know his 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 name is filtering up to the American Medical Association people in Chicago and whatnot who are taking a skeptical view of it all. But um, look, he set up the fourth, I think it was the fourth commercial radio station in the United States. That's the kind of visionary he was. Mm. And it was the first for sure in, uh, in the center of the country. So when when he started broadcasting, it's not like his voice had to break through a lot of other chatter. He was the man, you know what I mean? And and so radio was a novelty. People turned it turned it on, you know, just to hear uh, fiddle music or something. But um, he also understood the microphone. He understood the microphone like Bing Crosby did later on, you know, mm-hmm. that, that you didn't have to be big you know you played yeah. to the microphone you were intimate with it and that was an innovation so he would just sit there and unspool this stuff about uh the, the mystic chords of yesteryear and all that all, you know and, and, your, and your health and how important it is and whatnot um he could free associate like that like a uh, like a warm caring guy pretty much endlessly and it was mesmerized into people in their isolated farmhouses. You know, he he became their uh, this this friend coming at them out of the ether. They, they had experienced nothing like it before. That had a lot to do with helping to platform him and spreading his uh, spreading the word. So he's genius. He starts coming up with like his own prescriptions or whatever, and then he he makes this sort of monopolizing partnership with drugstores. And he said, you know, and he has people write, write a letter and ask, ask them what's, what's wrong. And they say what's wrong. And I think everyone pays a dollar or a quarter or something. So he's just making money. Then he says, Oh, well, what you need is the such and such tonic. And that's over at, you know, old Jim's, you know, on, you know, 32nd street or whatever. And so He's starting to like really build an empire at this point. Um, and at this point, now he's now he's not just sort of being unethical, as it were, but he's starting to get into the pocketbooks of 
of the old pharma machine. <laughs> so how, how did that all sort of shake down? How was that received? And is that when he first started, people really starting to try to take him out? Well, it was this, what you were referring to is called medical question box. And this was when he uh, was opening up his practice, getting it, uh, getting it expand, expanding it beyond, uh, beyond the goat thing. He created all of these um, so-called ointments and ungrunts and, and, and pills and so forth. They were all um, numbered. They had no names. They were just numbered. <laughs> the ingredients were secret. And he set up a network with pharmacies all over the Midwest um, to stock this stuff. Uh, and then, of course, there were kickbacks and all, all the rest of that. People would... <laughs> People would write in and say, uh, you know, I feel this, I've got this pain here, you know, this hurts and whatnot. And he would sit there on the radio and say, you know, he's reading the postcard. And he said, okay, well, uh, go buy number 50 and stay on that for two years, you know, and, and then <laughs> supplement it with number 14. <laughs> well, this and that's when he really did, as you said, start chewing into the pockets. Of, of regular doctors around because people stopped going, uh, yeah. everybody could treat anything. So now they would just went to the doc, you know? Um, so so other, other waiting rooms of legitimate doctors were suddenly empty. And that's when they, they got, uh, that's when they got focused, you know, that's what they said, all right, now we've got to do something about this guy. And they started complaining to the, um, uh, to anybody who would listen, but in particular, the American Medical Association, um, who are supposed to be the standards guys and um, saying, you've got to help us. This guy's poison and he's killing our business. Because he was making like 14 grand a week from the the uh, medical question box, right? Because he someone would ask a question, I have a pain in my left side, and it's generic enough that everybody listening is like, well, I have a pain in my left side. Maybe I need tonic number 50. That was part of what made it so dangerous because not only was he, he, he was he talking to the person who sent in the postcard, but as you say, exactly, other people would sit around and say, gee, I never thought of it before. That does hurt, you know, and then they go out <laughs> and stuff. So then they had no idea what they were putting in their bodies, you know, yeah. like, whoa. So who was his nemesis? Who who had enough and was trying to take him out? Was it uh, the folks in the media or was it a doctor? Or who 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 said, you know what, enough is enough. I'm going to expose this quack. Well, it was this guy named Dr. Morris Fishbein who worked at the American Medical Association. He was the first um, editor of the American Medical, um, of the AMA Journal. Uh, and he basically had very little power at that point. It's not like... The AMA had any enforcement power. Um, they were still, uh, it was still a fairly small organization. The country was was broken up into, well, you know, I mean, there was no media to speak of in the in the normal, you know, in the, in the sense that we know it today. Everything was, you know, tiny and fragmented. And so there was no, there was no central way to expose him that way. So Fishbein had a lot, um, had a lot on his plate trying to figure out how to um, attack him, you know, how to stop him. Um, what he did was a two-pronged strategy, as they say. He went after Brinkley's two licenses, his radio license and his medical license, the two, you know, two different uh, mm -hmm. 
two different uh, attacks. So he had him uh, brought up before the medical board in Kansas. And uh, he, he had him brought to Washington to defend himself uh, against the uh, Federal Radio Commission, you know, the uh, precursors of the, uh, uh, of the uh, FAA. It's the FAA, what is it? It's not the FAA. Uh, some, some, ac some acronym that's, <laughs> doesn't matter. Some acronym that escapes me, but yeah. yeah. So, all right, so they, they, they close them down. Um, and then he decides to get into politics. <laughs> How does that shake down? Uh, well, he, uh, yeah, he, he uh, has his medical license taken away, his radio license taken away. And uh, most people, certainly Fishbein, thought that he was finished. And he was, <laughs> he was not finished. Uh, instead, he said, look at what these uh, these, these, look what the big guys who are afraid of me, who, who, uh, who, who don't want to hear about something new, something revolutionary, something that's going to take money away from that, you know, all, the, all these nefarious people trying to, uh, to squash me, your hero, you know, um, I'm going to run for, for governor. Uh, uh, and he had so much, uh, so much backing, so much adoration by that point uh, that he ran, it was a write-in campaign, it was all of a sudden, uh, but he ran a hell of a campaign. And again, he was, he was the man with the ideas. He was the first guy with a, um, you know, with a sound truck, with a rolling sound truck. <laughs> yes. You know, he invented that. He was the, he was the first guy to go around um, on a little plane, you know, flying from place to place doing rallies. And he really, he had an instinct for it. Um, and he, so he, he, you had mentioned it was a write-in. So like the other candidates, like it was already typed there and they had checked the box, but they had, if you wanted to vote for um, John R. Brinkley, you had to write it in. So is it right that he would have won? except for they kind of got the upper hand on him and they did a little topsy-turvy. Is that right? Well, um, it's likely he won. He could have won. It was never, uh, you know, the, the count was never that, that, uh, that tight. So it's impossible to know exactly, but um, they certainly made sure he didn't win because they, uh, they, the authorities, the court, uh, the, prosecutors, whatever, they um, invented this rule that if he was going to be write-in candidate, everybody would have to write in his name in one particular way, J period R period Brinkley. And Brinkley <laughs> had to be spelled right. So, you know, he went around trying to get people to, you know, you know say it with me, J period. And it, you know, he couldn't do it. So all of these votes, thousands of votes that had things like Dr. Brinkley or John R. Brinkley or any variant were tossed. <laughs> you kind of like, it's weird. You kind of like, you know, hate him, but you also kind of love him and want to root for him because he's like the little guy, you know, but he's also, you know, loves himself and money so much. But it, it's a, 
you know, even as I was watching the documentary, my wife, she like loved him and she's all, wait, why don't they believe him? You know, like the guy had a kid, you know, all this stuff. And, you know, I think they mean to do that on that documentary, just kind of hook you in until the courtroom scene. Um, okay. So he loses that. He gets the boot <laughs> and he goes to Mexico, yeah. Texas. What, what's, how's this shake out? Well, he, um, since his medical license was, um, revoked in Kansas, um, he did two things. Well, he went south. He went to Texas where um, he was, uh, you know, he was famous there, of course. And um, Texas was a lot more willing to give him a license. They issued one because, hell, he brought in money to the state. You know, I mean, is it any, it's the age old story, you know, the, the money, carries it you know the money talks so mm -hmm. they, they that was the main thing he was bringing in jobs he was bringing in patients he was bringing all this stuff so they give him a, a a license and he sets up in the town of del rio which is just across the um rio grande and um and then he goes across the river to mexico he goes to mexico city uh pays the uh president of mexico a gargantuan amount of money you know well <laughs> you know, a suitcase full of money to let him build a radio station there. And he does. He builds a station right on the edge of the river, directly just over the river from the United States and, dr and drives the, uh, immediately drives the American radio industry insane because he, all the regulations that, that, that <laughs> had, you know, don't apply. So he, he starts juicing this station. It goes from like 250 to 500. He, he winds up with a million watts. And <laughs> most powerful station in the world by miles. And it goes over, you said Belgium, it went farther than that. I mean, it went <laughs> most of the Western hemisphere. Um, Crazy. It went Arctic, it went to Finland, <laughs> it went, it went you know, I just love this, this part of the story. I just love everything about the radio part. Like he's the first massive punk rocker because he starts a pirate radio station, just like on the other, just like yards from California, just the other side or um, from America. He doesn't even like he doesn't even hold back like the the satellites or whatever, or like straight pointed towards, you know, the mainland of America. And I think it was Johnny Cash or someone says, oh, yeah, back in those days. You could you could get you could hear it like at the fillings of your teeth and like the barbed wire fence. You could hear the the station broadcast. Well, they said so, <laughs> so. My question about that is: Can just can you pull the curtain back? Like, talk to us about wattage and just how much that was, and why was it Mexico? And, and if Texas was willing, why couldn't they? What like it was a federal level thing, and how did how did that all work? As far as why did he go to Mexico, and what was and was a million a, a lot of wattage uh, in comparison to what what else was around, like, you know, the Grand Ole Opry or whatever? Well, I think, I, I don't know precisely, but the, the top wattage going in the United States at that time was something like 50,000 watts. <laughs> wow. A, a million was just outrageous. You couldn't, you couldn't even begin to comprehend how, how, so he was blowing Amos and Andy out of Philadelphia, you know, stuff like that when, when uh, all these, his, his station was so powerful that it would interfere with, um, uh, you know, with, with stations all over the dial. Mm -hmm. 
in the United States. <laughs> None of which he cared about, most of which he enjoyed. Uh, and, okay, uh, so, so Pope, I'm gonna, I'm gonna drop you with something and I, I wanna hear your feedback. First of all, have you seen Oh Brother, Where Out Thou? Sure, yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm not sure, I, I'm convinced I'm th- I mean, it's obvious on so many levels, but I'm convinced that the Cohen brothers like read your book, read, uh, they just did everything. And Ulysses Everett McGill, George Clooney was like so much of that movie they, they merge was based on this guy's story. Okay, here's my conclusions. I got so excited watching the documentary, like reading your stuff. I, I mean, I've been called up our, the co-host Benji here, like, man, I'm connecting so many dots. Because so also there are um, folkways, the record label puts put out, a, and we'll get to this a little bit, but they actually released some of those um, over the border um, recordings of the Carter family singing down in Mexico. And um, okay, so I'll get to that in a second. So here's my, here's my overview and you guys jump in. So you've got a guy who is a smooth talker, Brinkley and Clooney, right? And remember what uh, Clooney got in trouble for? He was practicing dentistry without a license. I'm like, oh, okay. So here we go. <laughs> and then, right? And uh, and and let's see, what's the next one? Okay. And then And then you think you have Papio Daniel, the guy who's running for governor of Mississippi or whatever. There's also overlap there. So- Pappy runs for governor. Remember, he goes, he goes to the radio station and he's like, I'm go, I'm, you know, I'm blasting out everywhere. You nimwits. And then he, they, he also has the truck or the other people, they have the truck going around the short guy. Remember with the music in the back, you know, the white singing, keep on the sunny side. You've got, it, it ends Milford, Kansas ends with like that, that town gets flooded. And remember at the end of Oh brother who out there, he's all, no, we're, they're, uh, no, they're moving up here in this town. They're flooding it. Electricity, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Um, now, this is where it became full circle for me. I'm list. Remember that part at the campaign rally? I know, brother. The War V girls. I'm bona fide. And uh, they're up there. They're singing in the highways. I'm listening to this Carter family thing. And so it's not just AP and um, Maybell. It's the kids, too. It's June. Helen, Anita, you know, they're like six and eight and 12 or whatever, they're kids. And they got their own slot as, in that two hour slot or three hour slot or whatever, they were able to sing. And I was listening to that music and it's like, what are you girls gonna sing? They're like, in the highways. And they sing in the highways, just like the Warby Gals. Okay, are you with me? Did you, yes. is this obvious to everyone or or you got anything to add? Well, um, it wasn't. It wasn't directly um, Brinkley's story, but certainly those kids, Anita, June, um, they uh, they went to, to to the Mexico station just like AP and uh, yeah. you know everybody else. Uh, they did sing like that. They did do those. They did totally. Okay, so so he's down in Mexico, and how did the actual how did the actual recording take place? Do, are you aware? Like, so did he go drive, you know, drive over, take a boat over, record, and then come back? Did he did he phone in? Did they record things? Or how, how did it take place? And how did he get around the law? Well, he started out, you know, at the station all the time. Um, over time, he, he realized that he could uh, 
he could use discs. He could transcribe uh, himself. He could transcribe acts, whatever. So he wouldn't have to leave his mansion in Del Rio so often. <laughs> so he began to do that, you know, more and more. Um, and that, uh, and that's where he, he tripped over U.S. laws because you weren't allowed to, uh, to, to do that, to transmit, uh, to transmit that way, uh, in the United States. Cause now he was using American airwaves basically. Right. 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 So that was no good. So he had to, he couldn't do that anymore, but that was just a bump in the road. You know, his, his main thing of operating, uh, the, uh, Operating the music station, all of it uh, out of uh, uh, out of Mexico went uh, was unimpeded, and at that and by then, you know, his was the first border blaster. By the time border blasters became famous, he founded it. But then, ten or twelve others uh, materialized around him along the border there. You know, and for decades they became this huge, huge uh, influence on music and. Yep and commerce and, and everything else with all, every uh every every nutball every <laughs> scam you can think of you know and i know that i think he was like like you were saying he was doing it, like early on he was doing it over telephone lines and then the government got him there but he was such such a such a i don't know a hood rat man so he he works it out and i think you were saying he ends up recording it on these discs and then they just go and they just play the discs down there or whatever. So it's like, well, what? We're just playing a disc. So now the Carter family doesn't even have to wake up early anymore. They could just record on the discs. They they send them over the border and then they just play them. And and I had read um, like so none of those discs had existed. And and there was this guy named Ed Kahn. I'm not sure if you had heard of him, but he what he did his dissertation on the Carter family and he was trying to figure out like not a whole lot is known as you well know about the card like there's like four bullet points of things we know about the carter family down there there's not a whole whole lot that can be said but so he was interested in it and he knew his parents were going um, on holiday in texas in 1963 so he has them drop by you know the radio station and they find 17 of those transcription discs discs and they're, yeah, there's in Monterey from XCT. And so, like I mentioned earlier in 1995, um, uh, you know, Smithsonian releases them so you could hear them. They're even on Amazon music or whatever. But um, that's when we actually heard them. And just for the Carter family music lovers, you have AP singing, whereas usually you don't hear AP singing a whole lot. You have a lot of um, songs that, they, that aren't recorded elsewhere. Um, what is the whole thing called? What's it? What's it called? The collection? Do you know? Do you it's called Over the. I think it's called Over the Border Radio. Yeah, it's over. The, it's Over the Border Radio. So I mean, that's so amazing. But he had mentioned, he had mentioned that um, I guess in the early days, a lot of people would come and buy them and use them as shingles for their roof. So probably all over in that area of Mexico, those Carter families things are used as shingles. So, and then, so just to close out that section, the, so the Carter family for what we had gathered appeared nightly for a segment on the, the good neighbor get together program. It lasted 6 PM to 10 PM and consisted of four one hour segments. The, the Carters had the middle slot and after um, they were after Mainers Mountaineers and Cowboy Slim Reinhardt, which by the way, Cowboy, 
Slim Reinhardt, I think is the guy who wrote Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain, which I thought was a Willie Nelson song. But anyways, okay. So how, how do, what is, so we got the rise and then we eventually have the fall of John Brinkley. So he's the king of the world. His place is glorious over there um, in Texas. What ends up happening? Can, can I just insert one thing before we go there? The, um, the, the Carter family, uh, they weren't the only people he, he was broadcasting. Uh, he brought other country acts in. And of course, he was doing all this. He didn't give a rat's ass about country music. <laughs> he, all he cared about was selling what he was selling, selling his hospitals, selling his treatments, whatever. Um, but he, he, he knew the music would attract people. Mm. That's how he became this unintentional uh, ambassador of country music across the United States. It was, it was through these unintentional efforts of his just to sell his stuff that people across America heard country music for the first time. Mm. That's one of the things that makes him such an important figure. Yep. Right? Yep. Uh, and he doesn't, has not gotten credit for that for a hell of a long time. As for a number of his other ideas, simply because he was such a bad guy, basically, but <laughs> he was, you know, credit where it's due. So I just wanted to insert that to make mm -hmm. sure. No, totally. But so what do we, I mean, he's, he's living so glorious down there. And um, that gentleman, I forgot you, his name, but doesn't let up on him. And so eventually he, the empire crashes. How does this happen? Well, uh, Morris Fishbein, the guy who's been chasing him, has been chasing him for years, but uh, because Brinkley is so slippery, because he's spending, he's got his, he's working out of Mexico now, and, you know, these various other things, Fishbein can't get his hands on him. And uh, until uh, he writes, um, until Fishbein writes this uh, article or series of articles, uh, about Brinkley, just running it down A to Z, soup to nuts about what, uh, uh, how dangerous this guy is, all the bad things he's been doing. America, get a hold of yourself. You know, that was, that was basically the pitch. Um, and Brinkley by this time uh, thought he was untouchable just because he had been, he had survived so much and thrived. And every time people tried to put him down, he just got richer. And he just got more famous. So he, uh, so he sued Fishbein for libel. If he hadn't done that, he would have probably been okay. No way. Wow. I did not know that. But, but, but it was, you know, hubris, whatever. He was so intoxicated with himself by that point <laughs> that he, he was, uh, he had a kind of God complex. Wow, and he 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 thought that now he was gonna he he was just gonna squash Fishbein you know, like a bug, once and for all. So then Fishbein got him into a Texas courtroom, and uh, oh, and, by the way, I want to interject. At yeah. this point, now isn't he saying <laughs> he doesn't even need to like you know insert a, sl a slivered portion of a goat gland? Now he they've 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 been able to liquefy it now, right? <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's like it's like waving the vermouth bottle over the gym. <laughs> That's all it takes, you know. Yeah. Uh, 
But he still has like he's still loaded at this point when he's being taken to court, correct? Oh yeah, he's got all the diamond rings and the and, and the six Cadillacs. And he still has the mansion in Texas, and he's still living living it up. Yeah, his mansion is in the town where the trial takes place. Yeah. That mansion, by the way, I've seen it like. I don't think a whole lot of folks know about him yet, but which we got to get to, we got to talk about if there's a movie in the works or something, but yeah, I, you look at a line, you, I think it's across the street from an elementary school. It's been broken up, but there's that fancy pool. Um, I mean, just unbelievable, but yeah, could you, sorry, I cut you off, but ha, so he goes to court and what, what comes out? How, how can you prove this is a slippery snake? How do they actually get their hands on him? Well, um, a couple of ways. First, um, Brinkley had uh, depended, he and his lawyers, had depended on a parade of satisfied customers, bringing them to the stand, uh, and just overwhelming the jury with all of these tales of success. Um, but uh, Fishbein's attorneys objected to that. They said, you can't bring people up there to testify to the efficacy of any kind of medical treatment because they're not experts. They're, they, you, only experts can testify as to whether this treatment or that is, is sound. And the judge bought it. So suddenly all these people, is, is the sort of Brinkley's army that was going to carry him to victory, they were all excluded. Whoa. And um, so suddenly he's, he's there he's there more or less uh, not completely not completely defenseless but uh stripped down you know mm, mm, um, mm. so uh meanwhile fishbein's people he fishbein who if uh, if he knows anyone he knows strings and strings of uh of uh reputable mainstream whatever doctors and he just starts laying them on the stand one after another. You know, does this work? Does this work? This this um, this miracle, this this little bottle, this formula ten twenty that he's been selling lately. You know, what what's actually in that? And uh, it turned out to be uh, a thousand parts uh, water to uh, to one part iodine, something like that. So when they <laughs> so when they, so when the facts, when those kinds of facts started coming out, when the charts went up, when no they showed way. that there was no transplant, that there was no such thing as a transplant, that, that this was, that he was actually, when he did it at all, he would toss something into the scrotum, say, and, um, and it would just wither away. It was medically impossible. When, when yeah, all right. clear. Uh, and then finally, when Brinkley himself took the stand, it was just, it was a classic case of just watching him being picked apart thread by no thread. way. And way. so does he then, is he, he's sued for X amount of dollars and it pretty much wipes him out or is his lifestyle so lavish that once he can't do this anymore, it just all starts going away. It, 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 it goes away because the defeat, uh, emboldens all these people who've been off in the off in the shadows who were not satisfied customers who've been nursing grievances or or, mm. or wounds that wouldn't heal or all kinds of stuff that mm. he brought to them you know once once they had uh, some cover some credibility some other people around them um yeah. they went after him 
So just this wave of people start. The yeah. lawsuits just started. Oh, okay. You know, it, it wasn't just fish buying. It's all of the unhappy customers that are suing. Right. That that verdict just opened the spigot so that all of these other people could start coming after him. Was the radio then used to kind of discredit him? Like, did they then hit the airwaves with testimonies of people saying this guy's a quack? I don't remember anything specifically about radio being involved there. Yeah. yeah. Did the radio fold at that point? Like how, I mean, it, I think that station still exists. I don't know who owns it, but do we know how that, I, I know like it's murky out, all this stuff's murky, but do we know anything of like how he walked, when he walked away, if someone else took the reins up or Mexico just took it over or. Um, oh no, it was a, it was a, a money maker, and uh, you know he wound up. He died soon after that. I mean, the whole thing just crashed down, and so it was. Uh, so narratively, it's it was incredibly neat, you know, for him to like fail and die. It's really uh, right. And didn't he like lose a leg or something right before? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, when it fell, it fell hard, you know. So Pope, what was the? So we get like an idea of the the big picture, the timeline from when he started. Get, getting some traction and becoming famous to the trial. How many years was it? Because I know he traveled to the Far East and to like Europe. So what's the window? We talking three, four years? Well, he, he he built his radio station in Kansas in 1924. The uh, the libel trial that he lost was it 15 years later in 19. 19- oh, okay. So it's a good chunk of time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what happened to? Uh, so so he dies shortly after that i mean is there was there any money in the account in the bahamas or and we got little johnny boy his his only son his only child do what what do we know happened with those guys no there wasn't any uh any money squirreled away the the uh the feds thought there must be and they certainly went looking but they uh there wasn't, they couldn't find it. I just want to answer your previous question, though, that um, went by, like, who, what happened to the radio station? Mm, mm. Uh, it stayed, uh, it, it kept operating. Other people took it over because commercially, as a as a music station and whatnot, it mm. was doing well. So it, it, it had, uh, it, 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 it was commercially viable in spades, you know, so mm. Mexico was happy to keep it going. Mm. Uh, that was through the 40s, but eventually, you know, once you start getting into the 50s, Wolfman Jack took it over. Mm-hmm. That's where Wolfman Jack got famous, was sitting right. in his chair. Wow. So, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the chain of events here is just kind of extraordinary when you track it. So we've got Ralph Peer, who helped sort of launch the what is known as like the the big bang of country music in the 20s when he first recorded the Carter family and Jimmy Rogers and these folks and, and you know um and then that was huge um the recording industry but the often overlooked aspect was radio which actually got it out there and John R Brinkley needs to be up there with the name Ralph Peer I mean and he, he, so he's a big deal. Um, he's insane. The story, this story is insane. As we close out, um, well, first of all, thank you. Thank you for sharing this bizarre man's life. 
<laughs> you got anything else in the works as far as uh, I mean, I know the book's a little bit older now, but it seems like there's almost like a, a second wave of hype on on it and this man. Anything as far as other books or movies or or anything else? Well, it's uh, you know it's been optioned by a by a studio. Many things are optioned by studios and mm. that, that just wind up growing weeds. So uh, you know, I don't have my I'm, I'm not following it what they're doing you know but there is supposedly there are producers out there trying to put something together we'll see we'll see awesome well thank i hope you they so give you a cameo me. in it yeah, yeah just sit in court and you know yeah I'd like that. well thank you we've, we've been talking with pope brock author of charlatan america's most dangerous huckster the man who pursued him and the age of flimflam um you can check out his website pokebrock.com He's also a DJ. He's written some other things. He's got some musings over there. And um, man, we just thank you for, so much for your time today, teaching teaching us about the uh, probably the the first proper ambassador of country music next to Ralph Peer. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Pope. Hey y'all, it's Reverend Magnus, and I want to thank you again for listening to the Good Neighbor Get Together. We hope you enjoy what we're doing, so don't touch that radio dial because we've got more episodes coming your way. But we need your help getting the word out. Imagine listening to the radio in 1933 and hearing John R. Brinkley say that he could heal you of all kinds of diseases and ailments. You'd probably tell your friends about it, right? Well, we hope you'll do that with our podcast. Go tell your friends. Give us a shout out on social media. We thank you in advance. How about a little good news before we send you on your way? In Matthew's gospel, Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Some people think they are righteous and don't need Jesus. You know them. They're goody two-shoes types, and they snub their nose at you because they are so, quote-unquote, good. But if you're a sinner like me, this is good news. Jesus loves you, and he came to heal you of a sickness called sin. Why not call out to him today? He'll welcome you with open arms. Happy trails.